Psalm 113. Continuing our Bible study through the Psalms, Psalm 113, we'll start with our summary statement. Psalm 113 praises the Lord for the restoration of Israel. I'll go over that one more time. Psalm 113 praises the Lord for the restoration of Israel. Simple outline for the psalm in two parts. Verses 1 to 6, the Lord on high. Verses 7 to 9, the Lord on earth. So I'll go over that again. Verses 1 to 6, the Lord on high. And verses 7 to 9, the Lord on earth. All right, so we'll go to our observations. So Psalm 113 is an anonymous psalm. There's no superscription. There's no author attribution. um, No strong traditional evidence in favor of any particular author. Um, There's no musical direction that is given in the psalm. There is also no occasion that is indicated. However, in keeping with um, the Hallelujah Psalms that it's a part of, the psalm does envision a future scene of restoration for Israel, um, also referred to as the servants of the Lord or his people in this particular psalm. Psalm 113 is categorized as a praise psalm, and in particular, a hallelujah psalm. You see that praise ye the Lord um, in this psalm. So as a praise psalm, we have a call to praise in verse 1. We have reasons to praise in verses 2 to 9, and the very end of verse 9 ends with a hallelujah, uh, a praise ye the Lord, a concluding call to praise as well. The psalm also does have some wisdom elements in it particularly as you look at verses 7 to 9 you've got a reversal Um, so you have uh, the poor and the needy being lifted up out of the dust being set up among princes you have uh, the barren woman um, giving birth to many children and and such so you do have these reversals um, that are common common in wisdom literature um The psalm also would be prophetic, predictive, and again, much in line with the Hallelujah Psalms that we've been um, reading through so far, uh, envisions a future time when the poor will be lifted up from the dust to reign. Uh, Again, a time that has not occurred as yet, uh, but a time that will. So Psalm 113 is the third of this Hallelujah Psalm series. Uh, which began with Psalm 111 and goes through Psalm 117. But Psalm 113 is also the first psalm of a particular subgroup of psalms that are known as the Hallel or the Egyptian Hallel. 
uh, and that is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. So the Hallel is, uh, became part of the Passover liturgy. Uh, by the time of Jesus, it certainly was a fixed part of the Passover liturgy. Um, Psalms 113 and 114 would be sung as a part of the Passover observance prior to the meal. Psalms 115 to Psalm 118 um, would be sung as a part of the observance after the meal. And so most likely, um, those, are the, those are the psalms that were sang. The hymn that is referred to um, in Matthew 26, 30 and Mark 14, 26 that Jesus and his disciples sang after the Passover um, in the upper room when they left to go to the Mount of Olives. So the Hallelujah Psalms, um, they unfold this praise after Psalm 110. So they're all rooted to Psalm 110 and this unfolding praise that results. So if you remember, Psalm 110 envisioned the second coming of Christ, David's Lord, coming from the right hand of God's throne in heaven to earth in Zion to reign among and over the nations of the earth. And these hallelujah psalms just unfold praise um, in connection with Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 113 particularly praises the Lord for the restoration of Israel with the coming of the Messiah. This psalm is connected thematically with the hallelujah psalms. Uh, they, these psalms envision this future coming of the Messiah and, and various um, events or conditions or things that take place in connection with that, particularly the restoration of creation of Israel and of the nations. Psalm 113 does have some strong external connections outside of the psalms as well, um, the primarily being that of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel uh, chapter number 2 and verses 1 to 10. Um, and there's also a strong connection with Isaiah chapter number 54. And we'll talk about those a little more as we go on. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 113, so we don't have the acrostics that we saw in the, in the previous psalms. Um, mainly, this psalm is using imagery and imagery that taps into imagery that's used throughout the Bible. Um, but there's, there's uh, spatial imagery, um, so particularly we have references to time and to space in um, this particular psalm. So we have uh, the imagery of the sun rising and the sun setting, which is a reference from east to west, which is a, a horizontal um, reference. We have reference to the earth and to the heavens and above the heavens being a vertical um, reference. Then we also have reference to um, time that now is and to forevermore, in, into everlasting. Um, so those are the, the main poetic features uh, of Psalm 113. All right, so let's work our way through this psalm. Um, nine verses, uh, so a relatively short psalm. So I'll go ahead and read these. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, 
who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even with the princes of his people. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. So verses 1 to 3 give the opening call to praise. Verse 1 in particular opens with the hallelujah, the praise ye the Lord. Um, Now the word for servants that is used here is the servants are called on to praise the Lord. The word for servants, the Hebrew ebed, um, which which is the word for slave, uh, and it is equivalent to the Greek doulos. Um, we've um, looked at this a number of times in a number of different ways, but throughout the Psalms it's been used. In fact, in Psalm 105 and verse 17, when it is talking about Joseph, it refers to him being sold as a slave. Now, it's translated servant, and most English translations do um, sort of water the word down a little bit by translating it servant. Um, I think, I, I didn't check the legacy on this particular one. The legacy standard Bible was the only the only modern English translation I know of that actually even translates these words for slave as slave any of the time. Um, so, but it is slave. Joseph was sold as a slave. Um, David, uh, there's a reference to David as the slave of the Lord, um, Psalm 89, verses 3, 20, and 39. There's a reference to Israel as being the slaves of the Lord, Psalm 89, 50. Psalm 90, verse 13 and 16, Psalm 102, verses 14 and 28, and Psalm 105 and verse number 25. In other words, so this this term, um, as it is used, and particularly in this context and with the the later references, is certainly a reference to Israel as the servants, as the the slaves, as the the chosen one. It's, it's It's an expression of God's ownership. Um, of, of, God, of God's lordship um, over his people. Now, the reference to the Lord's name, as we have seen before, um, this is a covenantal reference because his, 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 his covenant is secured by his name. And so you might think of it as if you go and you buy um, a house and a property uh, will be essentially the collateral against the loan. If you buy, um, go out and buy a car and, and you enter into a contract, into a covenant to, to buy that car, that car is going to stand um, as the security of that loan. And if you default to repay those, the house will be repossessed or the car will be repossessed or what have you. Well, God's name is what serves as the surety, as the security for his covenant. In fact, um, the writer of Hebrews pointed out the fact that there was nothing greater that God could secure his covenant by than by his own name. So he swore an oath by his own name to Abraham. So when we, when we see these references to the name of the Lord and to praising the name of the Lord, it is a, it is a covenantal reference um, to his oath to Abraham, later to David, and then to Israel and Judah in the, in the new covenant. Um, it also is going to include um, God swearing by his name or securing his covenant by his name is also a, a reference to um, his person, his, his reputation. In other words, this is what's on the line in God keeping his covenant promises or not. It is his name. 
Um, to bless means to kneel down or to bow down. We talked about that quite a bit back in Psalm 103. It's, it's a call to worship the Lord. To bless his name points to praising his covenant faithfulness, praising him um, for who he is. In other words, he, he, is, he is of such a nature that he himself is the security of his word. He, he, he doesn't, there is, no, there is no other security. There's nothing greater that could be security for his own word than himself, um, his name, his being. This praise also is that that must be everlasting. Why? Because God has made everlasting covenant promises, and those will be fulfilled and upheld throughout eternity, and therefore his praise must continue throughout eternity. Verses 4 to 6 give us this these expressions of the condescension of the Lord. And it and it's very poetic in nature, um, but it's also it's also very much reality. So the, the Lord we're told first of all is, is he is high. And that word for high is a word that that means exalted. And it's often used of David and his exaltation to the throne. His being his being lifted up or raised up, or exalted to the throne. And of course, ultimately, of the Messiah being exalted to reign. So early in the Psalms, we've seen use of this word, Psalm 3.3. And Psalm 3.3, I think the expression is, um, the lifter of my head. Um, And you can often often hear people um, refer to that. And and for for some reason, and I I guess maybe if you don't really know the context, it seems to, to fit, but I've, you hear that being referred to as basically like you're, you're sad and you're saddened and you're, you're downcast and, and God lifts up, your, lifts up your head and lifts up your In other words, he encourages you and gives you hope. Well, that's, um, God does do that, but that's not what that has to do with at all. The lifter of David's head, he is the one that exalts David to the throne. And so if you remember some of those early Psalms where David was using that kind of language, he was essentially saying that... His life was in jeopardy. He, he, was, he, was in, he was being hunted. His life was being sought. He had great enemies that were surrounding him. And, and the promises that God had made to David would go unfulfilled if God allowed his enemies to destroy him. But God was the one, even though David couldn't deliver himself, God was the one that was the lifter of his head. God was the one that exalted him to the throne and as ultimately a prefiguring of the Messiah. So um, Psalm 9, verse 13, Psalm 18, verse 48. More recently, Psalm 99, verse 2, Psalm 110, and verse number 7, the same language is used, but there, of course, of the Messiah, the priest king. So this word for high here is used in reference to God and being even above the heavens, and it's a reference to his universal reign. God from his throne, high above the heavens. It's further expressed that he's high above all nations, and that's the goyim, um, generally um, the Gentile nations. Um, God sits in the heavens above those nations, just like in Psalm 2 and verse number 4. Now the word for glory that is used um, it is the word kavod. Um, we have made note of that throughout the Psalms. That word is often associated with majesty and power and reigning. 
Um, so it was kavod that, that God gave to David. It is kavod in which the, which the Messiah will come and reign. It is kavod that God has that is above the heavens and expressed through his reign over the creation that he has made. Um, references to this term um, start very early, Psalm 3, verse 3, Psalm 4, verse 2, Psalm 7, verse 5, Psalm 8, verse 5, Psalm 24, verses 7 and 9, particularly in reference to the Messiah, the King of glory there in Psalm 24. And it's, it's used on and on and on. Um, that God is above the heavens, it means that he is above or he is over all created things. He is supreme over all his creation. And that would be things in heaven and things in earth. And that would be um, not just human beings and nations, but that would also be principalities and, and powers. That would be spirit beings, demonic beings, angels, um, all, all of these things. Then we also get reference to there, there's none like God. God is incomparable. Um, this, is, this is referencing the fact that God is separate and distinct from all creation. So God has made a creation, even made man and woman in his image, but still yet God is completely unlike everything else. There is nothing that God or that is like God. He dwells or inhabits the heights above his creation. In other words, beyond. God is beyond his creation, even though he certainly, um, even the, the heavens and the creation around us, the natural creation around us, reflects um, some of the attributes and things of God, but nevertheless, he is above all. So his condescension is given to us in this imagery, like in verse 6, he has to stoop or to bend down to look at things in the heavens or on the earth. Like God has to, to stoop. He is so great and so far above and so far beyond that it's like he has to stoop down like we might be if we was examining something down on the ground and maybe taking a magnifying glass and, and looking at some small thing. Well, that's, that's what God has to do to look at things in the heavens. In other words, it's, it's obviously poetic expression of his condescension. But, but, of course, one of the great aspects of that is that God does do that. He does do that. He does bend and stoop down to take notice of his creation. Verses 7 to 9 then give us these great reversals that come about by the power of God. So there's, there's a, a, a lot of echoing from Hannah's song here. And so I'm going to go ahead and read Hannah's song. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that, stumble, that stumbled are girded with strength. 
They that were full have hired themselves out for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And of course you remember that Hannah was barren. And she was continually oppressed and afflicted and antagonized um, by her rival, Panina, um, who had children, uh, who was the second other wife of her husband. Um, and so she took her case to the Lord. And this is uh, essentially her praise of, the God, of God for what he has done. And when you read Hannah's song, uh, beautiful as it is, when you read Hannah's song, you realize that there's a lot more that she's talking about here than just the fact that this one poor barren woman was given a child by God. In, in other words, God is, is doing great things through this. This is a part of his purpose. And he overturns the proud of the earth he debases and brings them down and not only does he do that but he takes those poor those poor beggars and he raises and lifts them up um, to set them among princes to reign now so obviously we see the poor we see the needy we see the princes reference we see the barren woman all of these references coming out of hannah's song and the poor and needy are figures for those who trust, those who take refuge in the Lord. David himself um, expressed he was poor and needy. And he, he said such things even when he, was, when he was reigning as king. But I'm poor and needy. He, he still yet had enemies. He still yet was afflicted and oppressed. But he was, but he was king. And I mean, the wealth of, of David as king was only eclipsed by his son Solomon. But nevertheless, David confessed, I'm poor and needy. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the fact that he, he, his trust is fully in the Lord, that he has taken refuge under the wings of the Almighty. And that's really what connects all these together when you have poor and needy and the barren woman. They're, they're, these are all conditions of, that they cannot help themselves out of. They, they can't overcome these things themselves but yet God acts to overcome. He lifts up the poor and needy, and he gives the barren woman children. God lifts them up. God exalts them. They have no other help. That he exalts to set them with princes means that, first of all, he takes them from the lowest to the highest. He takes them from the, from the, from the depths to the heights. His people... And this is singular here, the Am, and it is with the possessive pronoun. And we have already made note of how that every time 
that it is used in the singular this way, referring to, it's referring to a nation, it's in the singular, and it is with the possessive. And here in this case, it is the Lord's, it is Yahweh's, it is his people. And every time that that is used, it is a reference to the nation of Israel. And we've seen this uh, in Psalm 3 and verse 8, Psalm 18 and verse 27, Psalm 28 and verse 9. Psalm 50 and verse 7, Psalm 68 and verse 35, Psalm 94 and verse 5, Psalm 95 and verse 7, Psalm 100 and verse 3, Psalm 106 and verse 4, Psalm 110 and verse 3, and Psalm 111 and verse number 6. And, and even outside of the Psalms, every time it's used in the singular with the possessive, it is talking about the nation of Israel. And the, the barren woman there in verse number 9. Now, the barren woman who is just like the poor and needy, unable, unable to help herself, um, stands for those who trust in Yahweh completely, sheltering in the refuge of his wings. So Hannah was barren, um, just, just like Sarah uh, and some others in the story of Scripture. Um, and God's sovereignty was revealed, if you remember back to Abraham and Sarah, when that great statement was made to Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? And obviously the answer is no, nothing is too hard. Nothing is impossible to God. And it was his purpose and his expressed promise for Sarah to have a child, and she did, despite the fact that she was barren. And so Hannah is, is acknowledging her place in that particular Line or that particular thread of, of, of God's covenant redemptive purposes. Now, the future time of this fulfillment is a time of great joy, a joyful mother of children. Um, and then we have this concluding hallelujah, praise ye the Lord. All right, so let's go to interpretation. Psalm 113 teaches, obviously, the absolute sovereignty of God, the sovereign supremacy of God. He is above and over all. There is no power in heaven or earth that can reach him to challenge him or overcome him. It is not possible. His rule extends to all. We have nations, we have Israel, we have the poor in the dust, we have even the barren womb. So the psalm clearly praises God for who he is, his great power, his sovereignty, and what he has done. Psalm 113 teaches the covenant faithfulness and condescending love of God. He has to stoop. He has to bend down to look at the heavens and to look at the earth. He, he, has to, he has to condescend. And he further reaches to the depths. He reaches to the depths of the dust and lifts up that poor and needy. He condescends to touch the barren womb, to make a sorrowed woman rejoice having children. These are the works of of the Lord, the, these are works in uh, that are done to the to the praise of His name, because He has kept His covenant promises even against impossible odds. You might say, 
Well, the messianic hope of this psalm is seen through the fulfillment of this vision that gathers up some different threads from the story of Scripture. So the barren woman is thematic in Scripture, and especially we go back to Sarah and Abraham and and the barren wife that she was, and we come forward to Hannah, and obviously this psalm is referencing Hannah's song, and, and there are others um, beyond her, and many of them that were barren maybe for a temporary time um, that God has, has blessed in order and used in order to fulfill his purpose. But the barren woman motif of Scripture is ultimately fulfilled in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse number 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So if you think about this thread, this barren woman, this this motif going through the scripture and Hannah's song, and now listen to the song of Mary herself. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. In other words, she's poor and needy. She's of low degree. He hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. And holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent away empty. He hath opened his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And obviously we can see echoes from Hannah's song in Mary's song and and amplified from here in this particular psalm. So this thread finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, born of the virgin Mary, that ultimate barren woman, so to speak, who has a child, and in this case, the Son of God. Now, there's other threads that are fulfilled as well. We have this reference to the lifting up of the poor and needy, and this was obviously fulfilled in David. So now think about David's song in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 18 to 29, after God has given him the words, the promises of, of his great covenant with David, Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? In other words, he's expressing, I am nothing but poor and in the dust. Who am I that you have lifted me up and set me where you have? And this was yet a small thing in thy sight, O Lord God. But thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the manner of the man, O Lord God. 
And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. For thy word's sake and according to thine own heart hast thou done all these great things to make thy servant know them. Wherefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name, and to do for you great things and terrible for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods." For thou hast confirmed to thyself thy people Israel to be a people unto thee forever, and thou, Lord, art become their God. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. And let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, hast revealed to thy servant, saying, I will build thee in house. Therefore hath thy servant found in his heart to pray his prayer unto thee. And now, O Lord God, thou art God, and thy words be true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever." The words of one who has been raised up from among the sheep, as it were, to the throne. And to whom was promised a seed that would reign in an everlasting kingdom from David's throne. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, the prophecy, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. You have to remember, this is after Jesse and the house of David has been reduced to a burnt-out stump. And yet there will be a shoot that will come forth. Paul said it this way in Antioch of Pisidia, Acts chapter 13, verses 22 and 23. And when he had removed him, talking about Saul, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior. So not only was David raised up from the dust to sit on the throne, but ultimately he prefigured his greater son, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, who would be exalted. John 1.14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Paul adds this, 2 Corinthians 8.9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So here we have another connection. So in this psalm, we go along this line of the barren woman until we find ultimate fulfillment in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We go go through this line of the poor and the needy being exalted from the dust to, to, to reign, and we find that being fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. But this psalm doesn't stop there. After or through these fulfillments in Jesus Christ then 
comes the blessings that this psalm sings about down to Israel in their restoration. So through Christ, this psalm is true of Israel, is fulfilled in Israel in their restoration as well. They are in their exile, they are in the dust, according to Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 34, and they are as a barren woman who's going to be exalted and to have children. So Isaiah chapter 54, listen to this song, verses 1 to 8. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, say the Lord. That's quite a reversal. Enlarge the place of thy tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the nations. The Gentiles, it says here, translation of the Goyim, the nations and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the approach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Now, Isaiah 54 follows right after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the Messiah. But it's not just that. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of that future time when Israel confesses her sins as a nation, repents of her sins as a nation, and embraces her Messiah who was pierced for her transgressions and by whose stripes they are healed. And like those lost and scattered sheep, they will be gathered and restored to their inheritance. And Isaiah 54 follows right after all of that. Now is the time to sing. Now is the time to rejoice. You who were, who were a barren woman in the dust will have so many children that they'll be too big for your house. You're going to have to enlarge your place. Too many, too many children. So that's the imagery of that blessing. And not only will they be raised up out of the dust, they'll be raised up out of the dust to reign. And this is, this is true not only of Israel, um, of, of, of those who believe in Jesus Christ, even of, of those of other nations, but they will be raised to set up among princes to reign. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Revelation 5.10, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on 
the earth. Revelation 20 and verse number 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. How all of that works out, I don't know. I can't say. But I know that it is a promise to Israel in their restoration. And it is a promise to those of the nations in that have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ that we will reign with him in his kingdom when he comes. All right, let's go to application. I just stuck with one main application here. So understanding Psalm 113 helps us understand that God is working to fulfill his plan from before the creation. So as you think about those threads and those barren women and and the things that they experienced and the afflictions that they suffered, and yet all the while God is working these things out to fulfill his will. So clearly, we should understand our reward is not now. That's, that's not where our reward is. Our hope is not in this life. Christianity and faith in, in God and trust in Jesus Christ is not about our best life now. It's not about health and prosperity now if you just believe enough. Our reward is not now. Our reward is in the future when the Messiah comes. That's when these reversals will take place. And also we look at a psalm like this and we see that nothing, nothing can stop God. Nothing can stop God from keeping all of his promises. Nothing is going to stop him from doing everything he's promised, including what we read in this psalm. So as we suffer troubles, as we suffer afflictions, realize that in any particular moment of our very, very short lives on this present earth, at any particular moment, we can be in the midst of intense suffering. But that doesn't mean that for that moment, God has ceased to be sovereign. He is still seated in the heavens. Whether we're laughing or crying or whether we are in too much pain to do either one, God is still yet sovereign, seated in the heavens, and all the while working out his plan for this creation that he has made.